The energy transition is complex, and it can be hard to know where to turn for information. In 2022, we're closer than ever to a cleaner future, but how do we get there? I'm Dr. Liz Dennett, and you're listening to Horizons, a podcast from Wood Mackenzie that explores the path to net zero. In October 1973, the Arab oil embargo sent a shockwave rippling through the global economy. By March 1974, the price of oil had risen nearly 300%. Almost half a century later, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has forced a fundamental rethink of the outlook for energy. Governments and businesses have reassessed their views of Russia's role as a supplier to the world. The big difference from the 1970s to today is that the world is now trying to simultaneously address another problem, the threat of climate change. We're now faced with two major issues, the urgent issue of energy security and affordability and the long-term challenge of climate change. On the podcast today, we examine five key lessons from the energy crisis and how policymakers, investors, and companies are approaching the dual threat of affordable energy and the energy transition. Joining me today, we have Prakash Sharma, Vice President of Multi-Commodity Research at Wood Mackenzie. Prakash, thank you for joining us. Great to be here, Liz. Uh, Prakash, I have one question before we jump into it. What is one takeaway message that you think our listeners should know? One takeaway message is the world is not made equal and energy market is no different. All right. Well, I look forward to learning a lot more about that. Also joining us today, we have Massimo Eduardo, Vice President of Gas and LNG Research. Massimo, it is truly a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you, Liz. Look forward to having this discussion. Massimo, thank you so much for joining us today. What is one thing you think listeners should know about the energy crisis? I think if there's one thing is that shocks on the demand side are very different from shocks to the supply side. And, and I think we'll have time to discuss what, what this means throughout the podcast today. Fascinating. Looking forward to it. And finally, we are very pleased to welcome Amy Myers-Jaffe, Research Professor and Managing Director at the Climate Policy Lab at Tufts University. Thanks for having me, Liz. All right, Amy, same question for you. What is one key takeaway you think listeners should know about the energy crisis? Well, that would be that oil shocks promote alternative energy, not the other way around. Oh, I'm so excited to unpack that. Prakash, Massimo, Amy, welcome to Horizons. Great to have you all here. Amy, you've joined us a few times on the Energy Gang podcast, but we're really happy to have you join us here on Horizons. Now, the energy crisis. We're going to run through the five lessons shortly. But to start with, is the world losing sight of the long-term challenges of climate change in its efforts to combat this current crisis? There's been a lot of attention paid to the fact that to meet the gap in energy in Europe, some countries are having to go back to burning coal for electricity. And of course, that is a setback in the very short term. But I think that's short-sighted because a lot of the solutions that will come forward in Europe, uh, in other places, as a result of this current energy shock, is an acceleration of, you know, climate tech. And, and by that, I mean, Germany itself has announced that it's going to push forward by 15 years its target to get to 100% renewable energy. You're going to see offshore wind in Europe fast-tracked you're going to see, I think, probably a resurgence of nuclear in some places. Belgium has already announced that it's not going to retire plants. It was planning to retire. 
So I do think that there are a lot of technologies that can be deployed that are low carbon technologies to solve some of the energy crunch. And I think we'll see that more in the future. Prakash, curious to hear what your thoughts are. The point is that energy supply and demand are moving in opposite direction. What that means is that renewable energy, which has received the huge amount of investments over the past 10 years, have not been able to meet even the incremental power demand growth, let alone displace the energy supply, existing energy supply. That means that what we what has happened over the past 10 years that uh, the fossil fuel share of primary energy has stayed more or less the same at around 80%. While on the supply side, we have started to see investments going down by almost 40 to 50% in the last five years on average. And that is causing this big supply-demand disconnect. It has resulted in a, in a huge price surge. It has resulted in a, a kind of... Uh, a lot of pushback on uh, on some of the near-term uh, uh, climate change targets. The point probably uh, that we get from the from this piece is that the long-term thinking probably still remains more or less intact in terms of globalization and in terms of decarbonization target. But the near term, the world will have to make sure uh, the fossil fuel supply is ramped up to meet demand growth because there is there are hardly any alternatives to to backfill the supply gap that has been created by this Russia's war on Ukraine. I think we need to not forget that US production was at 13 million barrels a day before the COVID lockdowns began uh, a couple of years ago and that this question about, you know, how much investment is going into oil and and so forth the bond market in the United States never cut the shale companies off. It's still a big piece of, of the bond market today. I do not actually believe that the shale companies in the United States have any difficulty finding finance, and they are poised to increase production this year, you know, close to a million barrels a day. And if there's some larger crisis were to erupt, I, I think we could see a higher number. And you might even get the U.S. government intervening to help the companies uh, drill more. So I'm not sure that this so-called cutoff of investment for fields in the Arctic really matter at this point, because we have short cycle production that companies are willing to invest in. And we have new oil coming on in Guyana and Suriname uh, in other countries that had we not had OPEC intervene in the market and we had not had this crisis in Ukraine, I would argue that the market might have been very oversupplied given the new COVID lockdowns in China and other kinds of disruptions coming to economic growth from the supply chain problem. Do you agree, Massimo? Um Partially, I think. I think. I think certainly, you know, a, a situation w- without the current crisis would have been very different. And and probably I share with you that the view that the oil market in particular would have been in a softer position co- compared to what we are now. But it, you know, it takes time for supply to respond, and it's taking more time than what has taken in the past. Look at the gas market in Europe, for example. Right. I mean, we've seen high prices for a long time over the last few months. 
and the ability of the market to respond to these high prices have been very different compared to the past. If you look at the correlation between drilling and prices, it's been extremely broken over the last six months, right? If we had not been at constraint in terms of how companies are thinking about investing, and part of that, uh, you know, it's also driven by, uh, you know, by, by shareholders and financiers, uh, you know, uh, and the mantra of capital discipline and, and the general ECG concerns. Have we not seen then, we would have seen, we think, a much quicker response to these high prices. But we haven't seen that, right? And I think that's part of, uh, you know, the issue that, 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 that at the moment supply is facing. Uh, you know, there is certainly supply. You know, we know that, uh, you know, supply will respond. But just how quickly supply responds, I think has changed over the last over the last few years. And that creates volatility. So I'm going to go ahead and jump in here. This is a great conversation. And I'm, I'm taking notes because I'm learning so much. Lesson number one is that the world is still reliant on fossil fuels. The energy transition needs to be focused first on cutting demand rather than supply. That said, limiting supply while demand remains strong is a recipe for crisis. So Prakash, can you elaborate on this for me? I guess some of that we have already discussed, but just to kind of put put it in perspective, as I, as I said, demand is strong while supply is, is kind of struggling and, and, and uh, uh, play, playing catch up in the sense that uh, in the past five years or so, very little investment has gone in on a uh, 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 in in the upstream sector, which in our estimate is close to around four hundred billion dollars a year, compared to around seven hundred plus billion dollars in the in the prior five years uh, periods. But if you look at the share of uh, fossil fuels in overall energy demand growth, is still pretty much around eighty percent. So this this kind of divergence in the the demand profile versus the supply pro- profile has caused a, a huge disconnect in where uh, where where prices are. And on top of it, investor expectations in terms of what what price they should be getting and what Massimo and Amy are talking about uh, their ability to uh, respond to uh, higher prices and 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 the supply takes time to come online. Uh, while demand can be volatile, supply cannot be cannot be ramped up and down very quickly. So I think all all a combination of these factors are are basically resulting in a in a huge price surge. And industry players are basically trying to grapple with how to go about tackling this. I just want to make one point because there's this belief that we're in this new age that's very different than what we've seen in the past. But I could replay everything we're saying now and put it in the context of 2006, 2007, or, or 2008, 2009, when we went to $147. You know, again, I'm not questioning that we're in a price shock and that, you know, movements, sudden movements in, in demand uh, aren't material or that there isn't a cycle and that cycle doesn't always involve or often involve one country invading another neighboring country. Um, you know, we've seen that story many, many times. You know, the question really is, you know, what has the shift in capital mean? Does it mean something that a BP is investing in charging stations instead of in refining? And, and what does that ultimately mean for the retirement of demand over time compared to the retirement of supply over time? 
Well, that's that's a good point. So so one big difference between 2006 and now or 2008 and now is the impact or, or the focus on climate change, the focus on decarbonization. Most most listed companies today, the likes of BP, as you mentioned, or the IOCs in, in general, have had a huge uh, ESG pressure or investor pressure not to invest in fossil fuels. So, so they have been going around and looking at uh, other diversification options, including renewables, including hydrogen, uh, EV charging infrastructure. Uh, but, but the point remains that the share of these new technology or these new demand-satisfying technologies is still negligible compared to the overall demand. So the share of EVs today in terms of total sale uh, is only about 8 or 9% compared to all the ICE vehicles on road. So EVs probably are not going to have a major shift in demand for oil while oil demand sector's own volatility uh, governed by or determined by a lot of macro factors such as COVID, uh, such as uh, less travel or more travel or, or other types of lockdowns. Or, so I think the point is that the world has not had a chance to see this type of demand volatility. And that is why they are struggling to bring on supply that quickly. Because there is a bit of, I would say, inflexibility in supply operation that is difficult to uh, difficult to get rid of. And I think also that takes us to lesson two, and that's that the links between energy markets have become much stronger, in particular because of the growth of a global LNG market. Shocks in one sector or region can be quickly felt by another. Amy, why is this an issue? What we're seeing is sort of adjustment to what I call the path dependency of existing infrastructure. So I have assets that exist today, and I have new kinds of infrastructure coming online. And and the pace at which we shift from one to the other is somewhat steady, but, but can cause these sort of erraticism um, in the market if if I have any kind of change is needed, a sudden change in demand or uh, or sudden change in supply, in a way, what happens is the number of different ways I can respond is broader. So if I'm Germany today, you know, do I put in an LNG receiving terminal or do I give a battery to everybody who has rooftop solar and make a virtual power plant? Um, or do I consider going you know, waste the energy in Europe to put gas in trucking that comes from biofuels, or do I do something else? So the the, the sort of, and, and, and the lesson, you know, I think the lesson of, you know, 2014, you know, just to go back to lessons, is that um, the higher the price of oil and the higher the price of natural gas, the more different solutions that countries can turn to uh, to fix the long-term problem. And even though I might have this path dependency on gasoline stations this two minutes or on um, natural gas infrastructure in a particular location this two minutes, you know, the, the, the response ability that countries have with policy tools to switch from one of these many global energy sources to another um, is actually quite large. And and maybe, you know, it's like we go into the store and if there's one choice, we know what we're buying. But if there's 100 boxes of different kinds of cereal, you know, then we're confused. Um, you know, maybe there's a little bit of that with the energy transition where people are sort of groping around 
as to what they think is going to be that best choice for that geography. And of course, that makes it hard also for companies to invest because if I'm going to invest in one solution and then the government's going to pick a different solution and make that a winner, that could make my investment unattractive. So I, I, I do think that the energy transition is is more difficult than what we've seen in past cycles where yeah. we just want to bring on the same infrastructure yeah. over and over again. And you mentioned a little bit about policy tools. Can you just quickly unpack for our listeners what, what exactly you mean by that? Well, I mean, take Europe and the state of California. They have specified what year they're going to ban new sales of gasoline engine cars. I mean, mo- in most places, it's 2035. Why is that significant? Because the automobile industry only changes its production platform, you know, once every 10 years. So if I'm getting a signal that I'm only going to be able to sell EVs in UK or in France or in California, then I have to change all the factories now that are going to supply those markets by 2035 And you're seeing that even in the United States where EVs haven't really taken off, you know, the New York Auto Show convention was just last week. It was almost 100% EVs. There were no concept cars that run on any other fuel. I mean, it was really just an EV show. Oh, and they were so beautiful. Beautiful. I mean, beautiful. And And from places you don't think is car manufacturing, like Vietnam. Um, had these spectacular looking cars. So, you know, my point is the disconnect between that and where we are today, where we're all stuck on gasoline and everybody's talking about high fuel costs um, and yellow vest movements. You know, we kind of know, I think I know where the story is going to end because that's what's happened in the past. We've moved to other technologies. I mean, I I, I agree with you, but but I think Time is is a constraint, right? So 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 we have a crisis at the moment, and I, I love your, uh, you know, your point about you know we can choose among many more different technologies and options to actually try and uh, and reduce demand and diversify, right? I think that's absolutely true. You know, the issue that you have is that you've got a crisis now, and to actually make that shift is going to take time, right? And and how you make that shift, what policy decisions are in place, the technology that you choose, to your point, will have an impact in terms of prices and ultimately how much we as consumers are going to pay for it, right? And so that's a long-term solution, no doubt about it, right? But what this internationalization of commodity markets means for current crises, which, which uh, you know, you initially posed Lisa as a question. So, so at the moment, you know, if if you look back only 10, 10 years ago in the gas market, probably was different for from oil and coal. But in the gas market, you had relatively regional markets, and shocking one markets would be relatively contained in those in those specific markets. You know, the North America has been an island. Asia was a very regulated market, very linked to oil. Europe was emerging as a, as a spot market. That's, you know, post-2028, we had an initial shock into the market that brought along a number of changes. I think now we're in a very different position, right? LNG, it's a link, a glue between a lot of markets. The crisis started in Europe actually before the war, 
right? Let's not forget this. It started before the war. The prices that we're seeing today are the ones that we were seeing in October, November, and there was no threat or very limited, or, or you know, there was no threat at that moment of a Russian-Ukraine invasion, at least in many, many people's mind. And so what happened then was that a crisis there started to eventually, uh, you know, leak into you in, into Asia. Um, and then what we're seeing now in, in the U.S., despite on a very different level, we are seeing some effects of the global LNG crisis somehow affecting affecting European prices, affecting uh, North American prices. So how do we go out of this? Well, the world needs to build more resilience, right? There's a long-term solution in building new technology, and I think this goes back to reducing demand, right, and making sure that the, the reliance on, on fossil fuel or one technology is diminished. But, but there are other ways to increase resilience into the market in the shorter term, and that's diversifying sources of supply. Gosh, I mean, it's so obvious now that European dependence of Russian gas was so too much. It's so obvious now, but why wasn't it you know, just a year ago, right? But, but it's also about, again, diversifying sources, right? So you know, Riga's terminals that for a long time have been seen as... Um, as potential stranded resources, uh, you know, are now seen as a gateway to, uh, you know, diversify supply sources and options that politically only, uh, you know, six months ago looked extremely difficult, including additional gas from the East Med, for example, or even additional supply from Azerbaijan, now look quite politically attractive. So, so there are some short-term things that 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 countries could do, and that's, uh, you know, prepare build infrastructure to accommodate a shift in, in, in commodity use, and then longer term plan for, again, diversifying supply and diversifying technology. They, they need to work on both sides to ensure that eventually future crisis will be minimized. So, so Mr. Mo, I just want to add to that point, because I think that's very accurate, that there is no shortage of natural gas resources, pretty much in any region. But for sure in the United States, there's plenty of natural gas. Yeah. It, it's highly accessible. It can come online very quickly. Um, and so I do think that that's a key. And we've seen $12 natural gas in the United States before. So we've seen mismatch uh, in the past. So regionalization, not regionalization, I agree that LNG is a great transmitter um, but it's a transmitter with lags because it takes, yeah. you know, a year or two or three to put or on five. a new or, or five, five, you know, to put on new facilities. So, so it, I think that really when we talk about the time it might take me to shift to some kind of other energy source versus the time it might take me to build an LNG either receiving or exporting terminal is not actually that different. And that's why I get back to my, you know, I got a bunch of boxes in the cereal row and I don't know which one to pick out because, you know, this idea of alternative supply of gas still has a time constraint. And some of those time constraints can be quite large. No, it is. It is. But there's something very interesting happening at the moment in Europe, right? So you've got two countries, the UK and Germany, right? One has a lot of regas capacity. One doesn't have regas capacity. Yes, there is a cap in terms of just how much supplies are there into the market, but the very high prices that you see in Europe have shifted 30 million tons of LNG this year to go from Asia to Europe, right? You know, Europe imported only 
you know, 75 million tons last year. So it's an incredible increase. And that has been at the expenses of demand in Asia. And what you're seeing at the moment is that MBP prices is trading $10 below TTF, right? It's not just because of LNG, there are some pipeline constraints that are limiting just how much, but, but the point is, infrastructure gives you a getaway for alternative options. One has plenty of those, one doesn't have anything, and one at the moment is paying gas $10 more than what the other one is paying, right? And I think, so So it takes time for LNG to develop. Again, there's a lot of resources in the US. Unfortunately, all of those will not be available, even if FIDs are taken now before 2025 at the earliest. But price signals can provide you know, good incentive to move what is flexible around. And there's been more, much more flexibility than certainly I would have thought, uh, you know, only three or four months ago, just how much LNG could be shifted away from Asia into Europe. And again, having access to the LNG through infrastructure is key for, you know, for energy security. Which actually cuts right into lesson number three, globalization. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about that. Globalization can mean huge geopolitical risks for energy security. Uh, Prakash, quickly, can you expand on this and what exactly that means? Yeah, sure. So what what has happened that countries have imported a number of commodities uh, from those countries which have got uh, resources and, and low cost of production. But uh, a Russia-Ukraine crisis has kind of changed that equation. And countries are now talking about moving to reducing a reliance on Russian gas or moving to alternative sources of energy or diversification, uh, et cetera. But, but I think we also need to remember that energy transition is not going to be immune to geopolitical risks. So for example, you pick up any technology, any renewable technology, be it solar, wind, batteries, hydrogen, or carbon capture, or transmission lines, et cetera. So, so you will need resources and metals and mined commodities uh, oftentimes outside your jurisdiction. So that means globalization has to be a part of the equation. Countries would need to learn how to how to make it work. You call it uh, re-globalization or a kind of a reset of uh, uh, trading or like-minded uh, uh, trading partners. Uh, but globalization is here to stay. Uh, you just can't get rid of it. You need to make it work to your advantage. You need to make it work uh, so that uh, uh, you are able to uh, take advantage of uh, uh, the the resources that you have got to allow you to do activities that you are good at versus to take from others uh, where others are good at. So I think it is going to be a, a very much a win-win, otherwise it's not going to work. But the risk is on the other side, right, at the moment. Because, I mean, we'd, you know, we've grown into a even even more so globalized markets until now, but but what the current crisis risk is is that uh, you know is that 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 path towards ever increasing globalization might 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 take a different path, um, and so you could see a world whereby you know Europe and other OECD countries try and isolate Russia uh, you know ever more and, uh, and and try to wane itself of the dependency that the moment have and, and something that could happen at different speed and at the same time you could see 
you know, markets like China, perhaps India, and perhaps other markets, instead looking at an opportunity to try and tie closer uh, links with Russia and and perhaps leverage on the, the abundant, uh, you know, cheap resources that that, that Europe has been uh, has been has been enjoying for so much time, right? So, so in, in, if if the world does take that turn. And you do see a polarization of of uh, of different economies and uh, different energy system and different geopolitics. Arguably, you know that could you know could again halt the 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 kind of path of globalization and could result in mismatch between demand and supply, not just for energy but for metals and 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 for goods. So 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 that's that's a big risk at the moment. So so what is the lesson that other countries might take from Europe's over reliance on Russia across? many different things across uranium, across coal, across oil, across natural gas. You know, maybe the lesson that countries are going to take is that I don't want to be dependent on any supplier, no matter how close I might feel that I am to that supplier. And indeed, you know, for many years, of course, the United States has more of its own resources than many other countries are endowed. As Prakash says, you know, there's not geopolitical equality when it comes to natural resources. But for many years, you know, the question was, uh, I want to buy from the greatest number of countries everything I really need. And indeed, I think one of the more telling things we're going to see going forward today is not whether there's some Indian refiner out there that can make a couple bucks by buying three cargoes of Russian crude oil from the spot market or on a tender. The real question is, is China going to stick with its policy that it it keeps a highly diverse slate of resource dependence? Um, And so, because if China sticks with its current policies, which there are some officials saying that they will, um, that could, for example, be very bad news today for Russia, Um, if they were expecting China to take up the slack. And I think that China would learn a good lesson from uh, Europe that pipeline dependency uh, can be risky. And, and, you know, what's the lesson you've just been talking about with LNG, that if I need facilities to maintain diverse supply, I mean, look at the couple, there were a couple of Eastern European countries that used to be the most dependent on Russia that are now saying, well, we put in these terminals and so we're going 100% off uh, Russian gas. And, you know, Germany can't say that. So, well, I mean, they can say that, but at a high economic cost. So, You know, this question about do I want to be super global, like I want to have like a million different suppliers and do I get security that way? Or am I going to pick and choose? Like, as you're mentioning, we're going to have polarized world where, you know, we in North America try to rely 100 percent on North America or, you know, we we divide up between democracies and non-democracies, like thinking about what is considered secure. Uh, is it going to be an interesting question? No, we all know that China is never going to do that, right? I mean, has never done it and will never do it, right? I mean, it will likely buy more oil from Russia, possibly. It will try and, and achieve good deals for Russian gas and LNG, possibly. 
is never ever going to rely as much as Europe has on Russia. I mean, it's 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 just not going to happen. And and you know, there is no surprise that since the war has started, who has been buying LNG from the US have not been European utilities, have been Chinese players. Right? And some of the Chinese NOCs probably are looking to invest in the US. So I think I think China, you're right, Massimo. Uh, maybe there is just one commodity where China is overexposed to the traded market, and that is iron ore. That is not coal, oil, gas. So China is going to be probably remain very much diversified. Maybe just just to pick up the point that Massimo you were making earlier about uh, Asia, Asian economies going going with with Russia and European or the Western world moving away from Russia. Probably it is it may last for a while, but but probably not longer term or even medium term. And and the and in my opinion, the reason for that is uh, Asian economies rely a lot on foreign capital and foreign technology to grow. If they if they kind of move away from uh, Europe and and the U.S. for example, and side with Russia for cheap energy sources, maybe it will last for some time, but probably not going to last for a long time because they would also be, not be getting. The kind of technology support and the and the capital support or or, or that they are getting from uh, from the West, so there is going to be a risk to those those economic growth in Asian economies as well. And we are started to see that because currency depreciation is a big issue in Asian economies, given their import dependence for a number of things, as well as for some of the inflationary risk that is causing uh, and coming from these high prices. And I I want to jump in, which actually takes us directly into lesson four. Resilience and security. Massimo, kicking it over to you, what are ways countries can improve their energy security? So I think I think we touched upon some of these points, but yeah. I think there are there are some short-term measures and and medium and long-term measures. So I think on the short-term measures, you know, again, uh, you know, building uh, infrastructure, developing domestic supply, and accommodating, uh, you know. Support demand responses in in power systems that help again mitigate shocks of of uh, of demand and and consequently prices are elements that government need to invest more into and and that includes also locking in long term supply to, you know instead of just relying on the spot market and i think you know, we're seeing some of that, right? And and we're seeing how security of supply is taking over, you know, some of the other pillar, you know, certainly in the EU that relate to, uh, you know, to to liberalisation and and to some extent, uh, you know, energy transition as it comes to burning more coal uh, in certain markets where where needed. But but that longer term, right? That has to be about diversifying supply. And diversifying technologies and and diversifying sources and and in that respect, uh, you know and you know innovation it's key to try and achieve those targets in a, in the quickest way but also in the most efficient way. Maybe if I could add just one quick point to what Massimo is saying and and I and I completely agree. The only thing would be probably uh, the investment that you are making today, say for example in building LNG terminals. I think countries could make sure that those terminals can be hydrogen ready or can become hydrogen ready in five years time or 10 years time so that when hydrogen supply is there, you don't kind of worry about, oh, I don't have the infrastructure type uh, feeling. That's one thing. And secondly, I think countries could do very well is promoting energy efficiency. So being an energy efficient country could really make you more resilient uh, while, while at the same time you're doing this exercise of diversification of supply sources and diversification of 
technology sources, for example, I think I think these two things can be done at the same time. One will solve the near-term pro- problem, uh, and and both will solve the long-term problem. We are almost out of time, but I I want to wrap up with our fifth and final lesson. It is innovation is crucial for energy security as well as for tackling climate change. Amy, let's start with you. What innovation have we seen globally that can increase security but also aid in tackling climate change? To me, the big area that I think has the most potential over time, if done in a sustainable way, of course, is electricity storage. So as I electrify to cleaner, lower carbon sources that I move more, move more things to electricity, you know, how do I make that electricity most resilient? Um, and that gets me to a, a wide variety of storage solutions, which we're starting to see get installed or at least innovating to get to, you know, the the more interesting thing on the horizon is this metal ear battery that's a stationary battery that can provide storage uh, for days or weeks instead of hours. And but But there are other kinds of things like that, you know, on the horizon. Uh, I was talking to a a journalist one day and they said, well, you know, has all the innovation, you know, exited solar? Are we kind of to the end of what can happen in solar? And I'm like, listen, can I name you four university professors that are working on solar paint? Um, Because, you know, solar paint is like the frontier, but it's not just a sci-fi thing. Like there are people making real progress on solar paint. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, Prakash, what examples have you seen? I would say uh, carbon capture and utilization is a technology that is going to not only result in improving security, but also tackling climate change. Because if you look at it from the point of view of what is a 1.5 degree carbon budget, you only have about 10, 12 years of kind of annual growth rate of current emissions in that in that sea. Uh, so if the world continues to emit at current rates, by early 2030s, the carbon budget for 1.5 degree world would be over. So I think this is the window of opportunity for the world to really develop scale and monetize this technology, which is CCUS, that gives you time to basically live with your current carbon heavy infrastructure, but at the same time, expand the carbon budget when you come to it, say by 2030 or so. So this is one technology that, that the world would need to master not only in terms of capturing it and utilizing it, but also monetizing it in producing different types of fuels or different types of products, for example. And as Amy mentioned about long duration storage, so this is where CO2 molecule can be very handy. You could produce a CO2 based battery and that battery can run your ship. So just think about the different ways the innovation and technology can really solve the problem of climate change or really solve the problem of energy affordability. And I strongly believe that the world has still got a lot of power and creativity in their minds to to tackle these problems. Absolutely. Massimo, can we rely exclusively on tech and innovation to combat climate change or do we need to use what we already have? Well, I mean, tech is certainly the the way forward and and cost. I mean, I never heard about solar paint or CO2 batteries. But but I think both, you know, Amy and Prakash make, make a very important point, right? So if we move into a more electrified world, 
you know, the, the, the way that we can store electricity and use it in other days or, or, or seasons, it's key, right? And I think that's the technology that's really, uh, you know, it's important to, you know, to transition. And so, uh, you know, batteries, as Amy was saying, you know, CCS. I think what I would add is the fact that, uh, you know, hydrogen is another element that could help in that, you know, moving electricity over time, right? And particularly for long range, you know, energy batteries and energy uh, energy conservation. So, so the idea of, of using excess, uh, you know, solar power during summers and try to store it uh, into green hydrogen and then using it in the winter, where we know that the requirement for heating is much higher than what it is in the summer. And so, you know, in countries within the Northern Hemisphere, where there's this big uh, difference between heat and demand between summer and winter, you need long range storage. And again, you know, hydrogen could be, you know, could be that. But just as hydrogen, uh, and this goes back to my role of, of, of gas and LNG, gas remains an option to provide that level of flexibility, right? And it's also an option that in some countries in Asia that are still very dependent on coal, provide a way to provide that flexibility, provide that energy at a much lower uh, you know, carbon emission element. And particularly if you combine that with CCS, that can provide uh, electricity at a lower carbon footprint. And again, you can move that you know, over, over season. But the future of gas in the energy transition at the moment, it's really a risk, right? Because, uh, you know, the premises of using gas in the future is about affordability and availability. We know that gas is there, but, you know, just how quickly and how effectively we're going to be able to get that off the ground and ensure that gas goes back to being a cheap, reliable source will have major implications in terms of the role that gas could play in the energy transition and eventually uh, in, in being part of, of again, a, a solution to decarbonize. Well, thank you guys so much for this conversation today. Amy, first off, where can listeners learn more about the Climate Policy Lab at Tufts and the work that you guys are doing? Well, we have a nice website. So just Google Climate Policy Lab Fletcher School, but also uh, follow me on Twitter at Amy Jaffe Energy, and you will see our postings of all our research from Climate Policy Lab and then some, since I still, on Twitter at least, cover what's going on in the oil and gas market as well as what's happening in climate tech innovation and science. Excellent. Massimo, where can listeners learn more about Woodmac's work on gas and LNG research or the Horizons report? Well, uh, you know, there is there is a healthy of reports within our uh, woodmet.com website where you can download Horizons, but also can download leadership pieces that talk about gas, energy, energy transition altogether. Uh, and if you're a client, obviously, uh, you know, within the portal, uh, there is plenty of analysis and insights that you can access. But if you can find that, give us a call. We're here to discuss these things with you. As Massimo said, look at our public site and there are uh, quite a few press releases, press notes. We are doing a special Russia-Ukraine uh, weekly briefings. Every every week you get to read about a particular sector. So this this week was about uh, metals and mining. Last week was about gas and LNG. And the next week is going to be more about technologies. So, so this is how we serve uh, in Woodmac our clients and our natural resources and energy sector. Well, we will all have to check that out if you haven't yet. Thank you again for your time in this really lively discussion. And thank you, listeners.
world is facing two crises, the immediate issue of high prices and conflict in Ukraine and the long-term problem of climate change. Policies and corporate strategies intended to address the climate threat have so far only had a small effect in terms of reducing demand for fossil fuels, which still account for about 80% of global primary energy. The five lessons discussed today have led to a roadmap for approaching this challenge. The world must cut demand for fossil fuels, increase resilience in each market, increase domestic production, ensure against volatility with that resilience, and finally, we must look to innovate in order to solve these problems. Thank you for joining us with this April edition of Horizons. I'm Dr. Liz Dennett. We'll see you on the next episode. Stay right here, though, because we're going to leave you with a final word from our chief research analyst, Simon Flowers. Thanks, Liz. I'm Simon Flowers, chief analyst at Wood Mackenzie. So will the world take on the five lessons from the energy crisis? Well, we have to if we want to achieve the dual aims of ensuring we have a world where economies and people have reliable and affordable energy, and at the same time, move towards a 1.5 degree centigrade pathway. All stakeholders have a role to play, not least governments, to set energy policy that incentivizes changes in demand as well as energy supply, investors to ensure the flow of capital delivers as smooth a transition as possible, and energy companies, they're the ones who will invest in energy old and new. Making decisions on the conflicts is not easy. Our ideas can help guide policymakers, companies, and investors navigate these complex challenges in the energy transition. Thanks for listening to the April edition of Horizons. Thanks to Liz, Prakash, Massimo, and Amy for joining us and exploring our five key lessons from the energy crisis in more detail. You can find the report and the podcast on our website at woodmac.com forward slash horizons and stream the show wherever you get your podcasts. Next month, we turn our attention to the super competitive bids for new offshore wind projects. We examine how governments are becoming more discerning in their criteria for bids and how developers can improve their chances of winning. Bye for now. See you next time.